just two local guys with so much to say. So listen to the real estate brothers today. Hey everybody, we are live. This is Lane and Jane here. We're going to be doing the forty-second uh, edition of this thing of August twenty twenty-one. Here's the intro. We just two local guys with so much to say. Brothers today. Here we are again. All right, let's get going through this. If you guys want to go get vaccinated, get the free remote investing e-course, just send me an email, lane at simplepassivecashflow.com with the subject line F-COVID, which stands for the F variant, which will probably come out here soon. But yeah, Dean, take us away with your portion of the show. Sounds good, Lane. Yep, episode 42. We're jumping into to August. Wanted to... Start off, as always, talking about the real estate statistics. So we're talking about July 2021 real estate statistics. And the information will come out tomorrow from the Honolulu Board of Realtors. But I believe it's going to be record-breaking again. And it, it, like a broken record, I think what we're going to see here is, again, might be off by a, a thousand or two. But I think we're going to, on the single family side, we're going to have another record breaking month with the median price around uh, $989,000 compared to the previous record, which was last month at 979. And this is compared to prior year, July 2020 of 815,000. On the condo townhouse side, we may finally be breaking that record again. I think the coming in at 470,000 is what we're thinking in terms of median price for condo townhouses. The previous record was uh, 461,500 in July 2019, and this compared to 440,000 in, I'm sorry, this should be July of last year. So we just touch real briefly. I know we go through this every, so real quick. So new listing trends, if you look at this report, it doesn't seem to look like much when you look at, you see the, the seasonality and it, it's the dips when it gets into the winter time and then in if you take a little deeper look at this, you also see a dip um, again right in the March, April, COVID 2020 period. So we also see that. But when you look at the next slide, I think that's the one that's indicative of why we're in what we're in, um, month supply of inventory. So as you can see, at the, the beginning of 2020, inventory started to bump up, especially for condos and townhouses, the gray line. And then it just went downhill from there in terms of month supply of in inventory. And now you see the condos are inventory is also going down real similar to the single family. Not there yet, but that kind of makes me get into like segues into the next discussion. This here is Paul Brubaker. So he did a few presentations to the Honolulu Board of Realtors to the full board and also to the Leeward Regional Group. And I just wanted to share the slides. I really geek out over him. He's one of the chief economists and touted in Hawaii. Uh, a lot of banks used to hire him or, or employ him. Now he's a consultant. But he did these two presentations this month. And the topic was, are we in a bubble, real estate bubble? The majority of my section today is just a bunch of his slides and trying to summarize what he said. We talked about him before because I geek out over him as a finance major. He was economics, very related. Basically, he's saying that for a lot of this quote-unquote bubble, or if it is a bubble, it was because of the work-from-home situation. And we're see seeing it, if it is truly a bubble, 
he thinks it's more on the single family, of course, and not so much the condos. I started off with this slide, but I wanted to get into more of the, his charts. So this chart here is showing new listings from 2016, 2017, and the dotted line being condos, townhouses, and the blue solid line being single families. We see down in March, April, 2020, the big in that gray area is where the beginning of COVID, where there wasn't any new listings popping up. It just is a big um, drop. And then as time went on, we can see that, especially the dotted line for the condos, that inventory started coming on market a lot more than the single family, excluding you see the November, December. But we had that big hiccup in terms of inventory not coming on market for those three to four months. Yeah, that was like the beginning of the story of how where we're at now. This next slide is cool because we talk about are we in a bubble or not. This is just single family median prices on Oahu. But you can see what they tried to do is chart off the macroeconomic bubble, bubbles that occurred. Right, We have the Japan bubble in the early 90s. And prior to that, we see the median prices climbing at you know, a steep ramp up. And then after the bubble, now then it's a downturn. And it plateaued and it starts to go down, but not too bad. It did affect us pretty major, but it doesn't really show in this graph as much. Then we see the next one, we have the sub subprime crisis. And again, we see it ramping up there. And then it plateaus. And it doesn't take as much as a dip or as long as a, of a dip as it did as the Japan bubble, because the Japan bubble affected Hawaii a lot stronger than the subprime market. So now we're up to 2020, and we see that last gray little that line. And the question then, are we in that bubble? But we don't really see a big climb. So that, that dotted line going across is like the best fit line, 4.66, like appreciation kind of thing. And so we don't see it ramping up like how we did for the Japan bubble or the subprime bubbles. That's a good sign from the standpoint of it seems like we're not yet in a quote-unquote bubble per se. That's, to me, how I read that one, that slide. Next slide is kind of interesting. He referred to what's going on now in Hawaii as the, the donut effect. And so here we have Oahu single single family home price appreciation for 2020 and this is by neighborhood so the donut fit meaning the urban core of honolulu being the middle of the donut and everyone moving outwards towards the north shore towards anahaina kailua moanalua mililani so we see on this chart the the appreciation for those areas and the, the interest in how it's ramping up so much versus when you look at what at the bottom of the chart what didn't do so well and when in fact in the other direction in terms of losing value of downtown diamond head alamoana kakako so furthermore on the next slide we talk about oil condominium prices so same story right 2020 we see the the suburbs ramping up in terms of appreciation wepahu marshore milani makakilo pro city and we got that middle of the donut with downtown kapuhulu kahala so again showing us how people during COVID are moving outward, yeah. And we talked about that too, yeah, Lane, from the standpoint of when you're downtown, it's ramping up now again, but before when it first hit, it's like, okay, you have to do social distance in the elevator. So people get to the pen, penthouse in their Kaka'ako home are waiting like four elevator rides because they can't fit in the elevator and social distance properly. So that was part of the reason. And another reason was a lot of people were being able to work from home. But again, I'm getting, getting ahead of myself. So the next slide, again, so now this is 2021 
appreciation for condominiums. And again, similar story. We have the the, the highest um, jumps with North Shore, Eva, Waipahu, all on the west side. Wailai Kahala on the east. Then we have Pro City and Milani. And then on the bottom, Alamana Kaka. The Aina Haina Kulio'o, that, that might be just a an outlier because I don't think there are too many uh, condos out that side. Yeah, So I, I just chalked that up to being an outlier from my stem for the purposes of this. But the next slide, I was talking about how with COVID, and we talked about this too, is like with COVID before, even with my old employer, working from home pre-COVID was very stigmatized and, and frowned upon by my boss's boss, in fact. And we weren't really allowed to work from home, even though we had VPN and stuff like that. But nowadays, you're looking at nationwide how companies are reevaluating their their work from home policies, right? So 35% are looking at all employees and giving them opportunity to work from home. So some of them 30% or most employees and some being 20%. So it's a big shift, especially I think for the big employers. And this is like IT companies aside. I was working for a large utility a dinosaur. So a lot of our stuff. Um, You're just a man before your time. You yeah. Like, so they never trusted so, you at that solitaire at your computer. It was Mahjong actually. We work with hardworking professionals looking to opt out of investments for the clueless. I mean, mainstream investing. We work with people we have a direct relationship while enjoying higher returns and a quicker path to financial freedom. I personally move my endorsement from turnkey rentals to syndications as my net growth has grown. However, the downside of many of these deals is that you need at least $50,000 to invest, and the frequency of deals that meet my criteria is sporadic. Check out my article at simplepassivecashflow.com slash OFUND and learn how I always have cash on hand by using the American Home Preservation Fund as part of this one-two punch to be ready for a great deal while still making a double-digit return. I have been investing in AHP since 2016. AHP is a crowdfunding solution to the mortgage crisis in America, where collectively the fund and investors like you pull their money together and get great bulk discounts on distressed mortgages. It's a business model that I think gets stronger should a bump in the economy come because this is where there will be even more distressed inventory for AHP to purchase. The American Home Preservation Fund aims to keep people in their homes so you can make a 10% return while making a positive social impact. Invest in as little as $100 by going to ahpservicing.com investors. And if you want the free Burn Zone book and learn about George Newberry's story, please send me an email at lane at simplepassacashflow.com. I like to buy stuff. Well, that's a liability. But our next slide, what the economists talked about next was about how productivity actually increased during COVID. And there's a, a big jump in our productivity. And I think that's a funny thing because the whole stigma, from, my understanding is from us, they didn't want the employees to work from home as because there's too much distraction. We would be inefficient and not as productive. However, according to this Fred data from COVID, we became more productive in terms of the employees' productivity. You know, measure this, right? What is this like TPS per per week or something? TPS. Believe... What do they measure? <laughs> That's a good point. Mouse clicks per second. I don't know. To me, and it makes sense too, though, from the standpoint of the mindset shift, where people are going to still get their job done. And with the COVID, you had conflicting priorities. If it was kids homeschooling and things like that so you, you had to get that done you had to become the teacher the ta the it support for school and then you also had to get your work done i think it did make people more efficient and then 
something else too on the next slide it talks about because there was actually productivity because of the fact that there was more company dollars spent on IT processing equipment and software by companies and it'll make you more efficient even from the standpoint of when you're trying to do work your computer boots up quicker and your laptop doesn't have problems with Adobe because you're trying to print because now you have a newer processor and you don't have these issues and you have drivers that work this large spend on IT equipment and software probably assisted in helping employees productivity go up just by giving them you know the proper tools to use that's interesting too so what else did Mr. Brubaker talk about so now in this on this slide he's talking about so is it a bubble and in the middle based on the fundamentals it doesn't seem to be because we have the low interest rates we have the recoveries strong balance sheets so it's not like the previous quote unquote bubbles the covid effect is creating the donut effect and we he did mention some quote unquote bubbleishness is what he deemed it in certain areas for single family in terms of Kauai which he considered zoom town because people could flock there and work from there I thought that was a kind of interesting comment when he said Zoom towns. But when the next slide, he starts getting into our, I guess, our main economy, which hotels. So the point of this slide is saying that our lodging capacity on the neighbor islands haven't grown uh, since 1992. But where they see capacity increasing was in the realm of vacation rentals. So that's the purple, right? But the funny thing is, how did these vacation rentals start increasing? And the reason, part of the reason uh, is because we were having Airbnbs popping up and the ones from homes, it wasn't from a capacity from the hotels. So to, to segue into the, the takeaways though, laying on the next slide, I guess he was saying that on Oahu prior to COVID, and I didn't realize this, but Lane, have, did you know that according to Brubaker, he said there's been like a exodus from Hawaii. And in the last three years, there's been people actually moving out. And I think that's contrary to some of the articles we see about people from California moving here and things like that. But prior to COVID, it's been an exodus out and a net negative in terms of our population is what he was saying. He's saying that there are inflationary periods ahead. And with that said, investments tend to move to real assets, right? Like real estate. So what he sees is um, going to see, you know, we're going to see an increase in interest rates, but not like how we did in the past, because now the the feds know how to manage these. They use the interest rates as a way to manage uh, inflation. Yeah. So we're not going to see super huge spikes is what the predictions are. And also with that said, back to the whole question about vacation rentals. And in 2020, we had the banning of re- vacation re- rentals and the Airbnbs going, but laying on the next slide in reality, these vacation rentals were illegal since 1989, but according to these laws now, they're in 2020, they're trying to enforce it now. And the challenge is that enforcement is by whom? It's by your neighbors calling in and saying, hey, somebody's running an, an illegal short-term rental. So it's weird from that time. And the contrarian thing with this is that how we said earlier in that other slide is that the growth in the lodging and inventory was from these quote-unquote illegal vacation rentals so he doesn't think that they're going to go away and the other problem too with which is why i think he's saying it's not really a bubble per se is that we don't have construction keeping up with the demand for 
for housing. So 40 years ago, we had annually, we had 13,000 permits to build new homes in Hawaii. So now in current year in 2020, we had 1,200 permits. It's not keeping up with the demand in theory, right? Not necessarily demand, but we're not a lot to to create that bubble because we'll, we have the demand, but not the supply to overtake it, I think was one of the biggest takeaways. So the, what I feel to sum it up, I feel like this economist is saying that we're not, in theory, we're not like in this huge bubble that people might be thinking we're in. So I don't know. That I thought it was interesting, maybe a little geeky, but I thought we talk about this all the time, Lane, and I don't have any, it's all anecdotal. And so now we have something to back it up. Whether it's true or not, who knows? But I just fun to talk about. Like since college, we used to go to all the the DBED presentations and the the conferences, and they had big panel discussion with him and the other big economist was uh, Leroy Laney. I think he was with FHB. They were both with FHB and Banco, the biggest bank. So they, they were hired to help forecast their banking sales so that they can plan. And so I, I, I geeked out over it. So I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of economists. They're like the weatherman. They make predictions there half of the time, and then whenever you hold their feet to the fire, like they're just making guess. And that, that's for, that's for all forecasters, like you said, yeah. whether even budgeting and forecasting for sales, like that. Where we have to have a method to the madness, and we have to have something. But is there a look back practice to prove anybody wrong? Typically, no. Yeah, I don't know. I was watching like the gymnastics thing, and this guy was just going like super detailed on like the scores the gymnastics could and could not get. Dude, man, like. They just got to play the game. They just get out there. This guy is getting, like, geeking out at, like, the ranges of scores that somebody could get in one place where... Oh, if they don't do this high level of difficulty, then they they won't be able to maximize all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that uh, kind of reminded me of Economist, right? Like, I, I want to see an Economist actually put up some money and actually put some skin in the game and invest one way or another. If he, if he believes that there's not in a bubble, let's go, let's pony up, let's put up some money, buy something, or the opposite. Yeah, that's true. Hey, we have a question from J.D. Wovener, and I, I might need your assistance. So it says, as a mainlander, so what are the three main differences between real estate market between Hawaii and, say, Seattle? So did you want to try that, or should I? I know you used to live in, yeah, you used to live in. Yeah, I that at first, but to me, it's, I think this Ubaker makes it seem like Hawaii is a special market. Right now, it's nothing special. Across the nation, everybody is hot because people aren't. There's uncertainty for sellers, so they're not putting their houses in the market. Therefore, supply is low. I don't know what demand is, but right now, supply is beating demand. Therefore, prices are high. Seattle, is it's a different play because people are moving there for the Amazon, the tech. It's a great place to live, in my opinion. But that's why it's super expensive. It's, the mainland's a little bit different than Hawaii. Hawaii is, you don't have places built. It's a lot smaller market. But both of them are primary markets, which meaning you're not going to have the rental value ratios to be able to cash flow out here. And yeah, part yeah. of that is because Hawaii and Seattle are probably in the top 10% of places people would want to live. And that's my opinion why I don't want to invest here. Yeah, to your point, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head from the standpoint of if you take Hawaii or Oahu, we were on an island and we have a limited number of amount of space that we can build on. So it's if I'm not familiar with Seattle so much, you can, assuming you just move further out away from, from, from the metro area if you want to, and there's still 
having new construction and, and that they're building stuff out there. Hawaii, there's a lot of red tape when it comes to construction, JD, especially. We have one of our biggest master plan communities, Core Ridge, about 3,500 doors that from the point in time that they purchased the land to build, it took over 20 years for them to build, start building homes because of the quote-unquote red tape, whether it be environmental or governmental. But that is one of the big factors in terms of having slowing down our, our construction, besides the fact that there's no place to build. I think that's one of the bigger things, right, Lena? And over, I think another thing too is in Hawaii, you know, we don't, our main industry here is tourism. And then our second one is, is the military. I think Seattle, you have, it's a little bit more diverse. And then you have in the outskirts, you also have other areas that, what you got Kirkland, right? with the Costco's and you have the Bellevue with, what is that, Amazon name? What is that? Here in Seattle, you have your Seattle's, your Kirkland, your Bellevue's. That's where everybody wants to live. That's the east side in Hawaii, right? That's where you have your old money, your Manoa's, mm-hmm. your Honolulu, your Hawaii Kai. But then people move out when they can't afford to live in Seattle. They move out to like Auburn, Renton, or like mm-hmm. in California. I mean, you can't live in LA, so where you go live, Rancho Cucamongo, out way out there mm-hmm. you know and you commute but that's in mm-hmm. hawaii the equipment is going out to the west side to kapolei the villages that's far out there it's all the same there's places people want to live and there's places people have to live because they can't afford it and they got it pony up and drive we have another come out if you want to take it now you want to continue lane we can take it now i maybe you can speak to the eviction moratorium in hawaii yeah shoot i know news just came out today about that because we were supposed to the end more time was supposed to end tomorrow i believe and i know we do talk about the more time i think we i thought we talked about the news in terms of the the was it the talk about this every month but it's like the same <laughs> freaking story every time they keep yeah. extending it and it's after a while i don't talk about it very much because this is why exactly why i invested in red states it doesn't really right. matter if you invest in the right places but in hawaii I think it's a little bit more impactful in Hawaii. I don't invest yeah. in Hawaii, so I don't know. Well, another thing, too, is I think I leverage out my property management to property managers. In fact, I just did a, a series of videos for my YouTube channel where I interviewed one of my local property managers to talk about the moratorium. It's supposed to end tomorrow. My apologies, Tony. There there was news that popped up. I don't know if you're talking about nationwide or in Hawaii, but... Before we jumped on this uh, Zoom, I know there was uh, something with the governor and the moratorium. I don't know. I'm not too sure if he extended it or, or whatnot. So my apologies. We can get back to you on that. Yeah, they kicked it forward. They, it was going to expire this month. I right. probably said that five months again. But Biden was it again. B- Biden extended it. Yeah. And my understanding is when he did that one a few days ago, it was like affecting like 80% of, of the country or something. But anyway, we got a whole bunch of questions popping up too. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, this is supposed to be an interactive type of platform, folks. So if you guys have any comments or questions, please put it in there. What red states are you investing in? Texas, Arizona, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, a little bit of Florida too. But yeah, that's where the population is going up. This is... Uh, 1031 question from Matt. How hard would it be from a timing perspective to sell three single-family homes in Cleveland and then roll the proceeds into one of Lane's multifamily deals? We will talk offline off that, Matt. That seems like a personal situation. Matt, contact Lane. 
Yeah. Actually, anybody who's got a 1031, I don't recommend to ever doing a 1031 exchange unless you're looking to exchange more than 500 to a million dollars of capital gains. To make it worth it. It's just not going to happen. And then you're going to be stuck in the same predicament in three to five years in the future. I want to end my section with Obed. Oh, oh Matt. Matt's going to ask some questions. And hopefully, regardless of the kids, go to bed. He's on the mainland asking these questions. This, this is the Hawaii show. You guys got the wrong show. But regardless, you still got to keep your questions clean, even though the kids went to bed. I don't know if that's where you're going with that one. But <laughs> I think I want to end with the buyer's corner. So I always like to talk about practical matters. One of my team members had her offer accepted on a single family home, the neighbor island. And it was a multiple offer situation. And the buyer submitted a very compelling cover letter. And they ended up winning and I believe... Those things, man. And you know what? The, according to the seller's agent, it actually made the seller tear up uh, because of how well it was written. Yeah, I don't know if Mr. Jordan was the one selling it, but yeah, it. according to the seller's agent, it made them tear up because it made them think of how they were when they bought that property. So their point being is that there's sometimes that taking the time to draft a very thoughtful and emotional cover letter works on the other side though you got to think about the letter could work against you in terms of somebody could read it and could go the opposite way and not like it another thing to consider is that some brokerages and jurisdictions are actually talking about not accepting cover letters for the real estate transaction process because of potential legal implications in terms of the fair housing act in they've I believe what's, what's happening is people, potential buyers have made complaints that, you know, they may have been uh, unfairly ruled against because of their letters and being a protected class. So I think with those potential things on the horizon, there's now talks about just not even submitting cover letters. And it could be a decision by the brokerage because of their risk management slash legal team, or it could be something that an entire industry does in terms of the the Board of Realtors or the Hawaii Realtors Association. That's what I'm talking about. As a buyer or as a seller, I wouldn't even open that thing. I wouldn't even trigger that read receipt so I don't trigger any of that stuff. Yeah, as, don't as, ask, or don't hear, don't listen, don't hear. I don't. And as, invest, as investors, Lena, especially on when we're trying to decide to sell these homes that either we used to live in or we held for a while or we inherited, a lot of times we need to remember to take emotion out of it, right? From the standpoint of what kind of return are we getting? Right, in this case. Right. I don't want to open up a letter and they just say, I'm this race, or I got this disability. And now if I don't give the deal to them, that they're going to sue From your standpoint, I, I totally get it. And however, like I said, in my example, my we just got a deal because of it. Yeah, it's it's a judgment call. For now, it's a judgment call for everyone, but like, like yeah, do you play that warm and fuzzy game or do you risk having issues? So my buyer's corner point of discussion I wanted to end my section with. That one is, that's a that's a new one. Don't even <laughs> leave your house. All right. Hey, folks, if you guys want to get the remote rental e-course, shoot me an email, lane at scopassivecashflow.com. Even if you aren't vaccinated, that's cool too. You just put light in the subject line. We'll give it to you. This is my portion of the show. We're going to talk a little bit more about more mainland type of investing stats. But the first thing here is a little bit of a teaching point. So I think I've been talking about 
to you earlier, Dean. There's some people that like send over like deals, like private money lending deals, and they'll be like, "Oh, hey, I'll lend money to this deal. These guys are flipping a house, and they'll give you fifteen, eighteen percent return on your money per paid per year, and that's a really good rate, right? So most unsophisticated investors will take it, but when you start to dig into it, who's the actual operator, who's the house flipper, they're just some Joe Schmo that this is their first, second deal they're flipping. So they're, it's substantial extreme risk. So you're buying this crappy B3, B minus B paper, right? If you were to kind of line it up with you know, some kind of normal ranking system. So what some people will do is they'll build up a brand and they will white label those crappy loans and sell it to They'll go to Dean and be like, hey, Dean, I've got this uh, the same note. You want to lend on it and we'll give you 12%. But little do you know is that I'm going to that newbie flipper charging him 20% because nobody wants to lend him money. But I'm just white labeling his loan to an investor like you. So this, is, yep. this happens a lot. This yep. is hard money. Yep. I've heard it too. And then a lot of times you have you know, no recourse. You're not even a priority on no collateral, no, no means if there's a default, right? And that's why you're getting these high rates Yeah. versus return. The, the folks who have done dozens and dozens and dozens of house flips in the past that have a good track record, they can borrow money all day at 5 to 6% or less. And those, maybe you consider that more like A paper, B plus paper. But you know, I just wanted to say this because like investors will stream an email saying, oh, this guy's he wants to pay me like 15, 18 percent. I'm like, yeah, because it's garbage paper is what you're buying. Bonds. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like junk bonds or yep. subprime lenders. Yep. And people just don't understand this. So I had my VA make this chart for me so I can explain it to everybody. I like it. So I like athletes because they pay all our taxes for us. Those poor guys get hammered compared to you know, the wealthy I got to do my tax paper. They're due October 15th for those of you guys who extend every year. I am uh, licking my chops. I'm very optimistic once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys want to see my old tax returns, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. You might be pretty upset. And uh, yeah, I, the, the internet has all kinds of people out there. If there's a lot of like micro influencer, especially in the crypto world, just be careful out there. Everybody seems like they are a magical crypto trader. This is why I stay with real assets, no tricks, no games. So this first graphic is shows the tax rates of different countries. Here the US down there on the bottom left is at 24.5% average rate. It is a lot lower than all these other countries, like in Europe. Those socialistic company, uh, countries. Right. So someone said in, in our Facebook group that you know, a lot of these countries have government-provided healthcare which makes sense for the added 10%, 15% costs. And that makes sense. I'm probably, gam- I'd gamble. The United States will probably have some sort of, I guess what, that's what there was all about. Yeah. yeah, we'll probably head in that direction at some point and taxes will be going up. Like Sweden, because I, yeah, a few friends from Sweden. And like you said, the, the rates are ridiculous, but they have healthcare for all, right? Yeah, I'm trying to look for Canada, but, oh, there it is, the little maple leaf, 33.5%. I know they have government. So this is from apartment list, national rent growth exceeding pre-pandemic trends. So just the, your other slide of the prices of homes going up, the prices of rents traditionally go up very cyclically. 
in a pattern and it generally follows an upward trend until the pandemic happens and things slow down, pause a little bit. But now as of beginning of 2021, rents are off to the races and we're going to see some of that data here in the coming slides. Uh, national index up 9.4% since March of 2020. So rents are going up. And maybe this is for to take offline, but how does it affect when you folks are underwriting deals in terms of the, the rent increases? Are, are you following this trend of the big ramp or are you toning it down in terms of more net dotted line? Whether in the pandemic, pre-pandemic, or now post-pandemic, we always use the same number, which is like usually about 2% rent increases per year just to keep up with the pace of inflation. If you're seeing people out there underwriting for three, four, five, 6%, that is crazy. That's not going to happen. They'll chuck that deal out into the water. And that would be the quote-unquote lost to lease portion of the value-add play. It's just it's just not going to happen. You know, That's I gravy. Think. That's all gravy. If it happens, yeah. it's, it's great. I think you want to underwrite for the normal, what you think will normally happen. Maybe not what's happening right now because there's great growth, but what's normally going to happen. Here's the thing, like I was thinking this when you're talking about the, the economists, right? So these big companies hire economists to give them this, these takeaways and ultimately give them a number. And you are a finance guy. You're just waiting for that escalator <laughs> number that the whole company was going to use to drive up right. annual escalator on capital purchases, et cetera. Yep. Exactly. It's, it's always just give me the damn number. Dude, we're going to do what we're going to do. We just need to know what it costs. Right. It's not, right, a, right. it's not to make a binary. Yes, we will purchase these things. No, we will not. But here's the, that's what sophisticated businesses do. But what the layman does, the average person is asking the economy or they're looking what the economist is doing or watching the, the news and they're making a binary. Do I buy a house to live in now? Or do I wait? which to me is a stark contrast from what businesses do. I think mm. people need to act more like businesses. Are you going business, to buy a house? You can't wait. You can't wait. That's why as a business. It's going to, keep, an... it's going to go up, yeah. but you just need to know how much it co costs to account for it. But people have it backwards in their own personal finances where they're letting the stuff dictate what they do or fear dictate what right. they do or euphoria dictate what they're, they're doing. But I don't know. It's just, I, I think if you're going to go buy a house, go buy a house. Yeah. It's like the stock market stock stock market bears five years ago, eight years ago. They're trying to time things, and it's and look how much you lost out. I would like to talk about stocks on this, but prime example because we see we do see that too on the real estate, either investing or even trying to buy a home too. It's like oh, trying to time it. Should I wait? What always looking for the answers and. and, and you know, everyone has to do what's right for for them. And to your point, Lane, it's like, it, it, especially for, for when you, you own a home, it's hard to time owner-occupant home. You can, because I know philosophically, Lane, I know you don't even want to own your home because you don't want to have that lazy equity. So you're from that standpoint, if you're having your equity work for you the way you do, then you're trying to constantly deploy the equity because you want it, because of what you're putting it into is cash flowing stuff. So... That's a different play than other others who are just like sitting on the side and waiting. The recap is amateurs let the stuff play into their decision, yes or no. But the pros, they do what they're going to do, but they let it, they just let the, it change the budgets getting there, yeah. I guess. Or are you looking for different alternatives in terms of opportunities? So this next slide is from John Burns, The Rise of Sister Cities. So all this is talking about is you got places like Seattle and Tacoma, Cleveland and Canton, Ohio, New York and Philadelphia, Durham and Greensboro, Palm Beach and Port St. Lucie. 
Dallas, Fort Worth, Denver and Colorado Springs, Los Angeles and Bakersfield, East Bay and Stockton, and Phoenix and Tucson. So the big city is the first, the second is the, the sister city. And I guess it's what it's saying is don't discount the small sister city along with it. And this kind of goes along with, I think as the book is big shifts ahead, I think, the, the rise of larger metropolises where big cities just clump into one big MSA. This one is if I'm real page, this is talking about this is talking about second quarter apartment demand, net increase in occupied units. So from wow. the top, Dallas Fort Worth, Los Angeles, Orange County, Houston, Chicago, South Florida, Washington DC, Bay Area, New York, Seattle, Atlanta, Phoenix, Austin. I'm surprised okay. Chicago is on there. So like New York, Chicago Seattle, they had a little bit of a bounce back because if you recall this time last year, it's a place where ghost towns, but you're having the bounce back. Yeah. To me, it's like living in Hawaii. That's where you want to live. It might get too expensive, but people keep going back to the terrible area. Because if you have, if you're the haves, then why not? It's, it's a safe haven. Yeah. It's low cap rates area. Low cap rates are bad for investors, but. The reason why it's a low cap rate is because it's a low risk area. It's always going to be the best place to live that people yeah. want to. You don't have to worry about New York going downhill. It's freaking yeah. New York. Leading indicator of remodeling activity in the second quarter of 2021 is going up. And this is the trend that has been going on since the beginning of the pandemic where people have been remodeling more. This, from, this is a little surprising. U.S. foreclosures in the first six months of 2021 hit an all-time low of 65,000. I guess that makes sense because there's yeah. no foreclosures. I think unlike the the subprime crash, I think a lot of people still are in the black in terms of having equity in their properties, right? Because the, the debt ratios weren't, in terms of the financing, people weren't allowed to do 100% financing or something ridiculous. So people still have equity. So those that need to get out can get out and not have a have a distressed property situation, I think. Again, from the Joint Center Housing Studies for Harvard University, this is no different than the slide that you showed earlier about inventory going down in Hawaii, but this is nationally. Fell to another record low in early 2021. This is what makes the prices go up. So now we're overlaying the year-over-year changes in prices on the national scene. And low supply means supply and demand curve. That means the prices go up. Surpassing the hotness of the market in 2013 and 14, in case people want to know. You don't need an economist to tell you that. And you don't need an economist to tell everybody that rents are rising quickly everywhere. This is just a little map of all pretty much 100 largest U.S. cities. Red means rents are going up. Here's a graph of population growth. So you were saying earlier that here, population growth went up 1.5 million or 7%. Oh, interesting. But here's my take on it. In, I, I agree with you. People are generally moving out that can't afford to live in Hawaii. The people moving and replacing it are going are more affluent people that can remote work, retiring. So and, af- sure. and afford the houses here. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So it makes sense that the new house of supply, like a Ridge, is above the median or average. Yeah. The low end is being replaced by the high end. Yep. And overall, the population is going up. So 
across the nation, I mean, population is going up too due to immigration. But places that are going up double digits, Washington, Idaho, Oregon, Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. The Northeast is just pretty much a little flat line up there. Yeah. I'm surprised like Illinois is as at a status quo and not like a negative. Yeah, that that to me that's pretty much a negative, right? If you're at zero yeah. percent. So this is over a ten year period, right? It would be interesting to see if it was like a shorter window like a three to five year then we'd see a lot probably we might see a little bit more disparity or some reds in there and some brighter blues in those areas that you mentioned the red states too yeah do you still own that chicago stuff i am in the process of selling it yeah don't do a 10 exchange i honestly i and we discussed this too we agree to disagree i think there are times where 1031s um, do make sense. And if we're consistently doing, say, syndications, and then you're, you're, the 1031s offer a level of stability in terms of not having to do a lot of short-term tax planning is, I guess, how I'll deem it, right? Because like how we're talking about creating like a syndication ladder, then you're going to consistently look for the new deal to, to shelter the gains from the payout from your syndication that's cashing out this year. So I, I do see a time and place where you could use it to, to park some deferred gains indefinitely and then also use that property as a legacy, uh, I guess, property. And especially assuming the step-up basis law stays the same, it's a great way to for you to pass on legacy wealth, right? And and yeah. then have that that deferral be permanent, or at least when you pass it on to your heirs. So I do see merit in the 1031 from that standpoint. Yeah. But I, I do understand where you're coming from, Lane, and I, I do agree in certain cases. Yeah, in those cases, I do recognize that, but, but they're pretty rare. The yeah. cases where I would use it is if you're talking about a huge exchange, like you're mm. sitting on at least maybe a million dollars plus of capital mm. gain depreciation recapture. That's a big whack. We got to sit down. Right. We got to talk about this plan. And we may need to do a 1031 to just delay the number. Right, um, right, right, but right. I asked this, I just asked this recently and thankfully my clients know I'm not being a jerk about it, but I'm like, how old are, how old are the people up there? If it's grandma and grandpa's property and they're like 90 years old, they probably won't live for another decade or two. So in those cases, it makes sense to do it. A lot of my clients have a really good sense of humor. I've had a couple times where people are like, Lane, I'm going to die soon. I don't, I'm already 80. I don't think I'm, I'm just going to hold it. I know it's a bad idea, but I'm just going to give it to my kids with a step-up basis. That, that's when you don't, if you need to do the 1031, you do that. And she did the finish. Talking about that kind of stuff, it's, it's legitimate. It's morbid, but that's part of tax planning and what the, the tax planners do for you. is it, It's like setting up your trust. It's very morbid talking about you're going to die. And if and when you do die, what, what's going to happen to your assets? So it's, it's depressing at times, but it's practical. And I think it's it's like doing any business decision. You get a, you're looking at all these options and it's in terms of business, it's risk management, basically. Yeah. yeah. The system is designed to take money from people who aren't sophisticated, like rich people who just have all their money in one property and just pass it off to their unsophisticated kids or athletes. Athletes pay a high tax rate because they just don't know what they're doing in terms of taxes. That's 90% of 
wealth leaves the family in two to three generations. One of my uh, old bosses used to say, the IRS is not going to hand out you these tax breaks. You have to go out and, and, and find them or hire someone to find them for you. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. If not, how, how will we fix the potholes? Yeah. Yeah. But I think knowing that those types of shelters are out there is the beginning. And I think that's how your education works, right? Is letting the uh, investors know that they're, are these alternative investments out there outside of what we've learned in terms of 401ks and the stock and bond market and stuff like that? Yeah. yeah. There's just a lot of people out there that are good little boys and girls and they do what they're told and they, they don't question the man behind the curtain to use a Wizard of yep. Oz. And they think that they just gonna the best way to shelter taxes is a 401k or a Roth IRA, which I think yep. are really horrible ways to doing higher. <laughs> like sheltering from taxes. And we have a great comment from Mr. Sanford again. He said, don't forget about your life insurance policy designed for investment. So I'm assuming he's talking about infinite banking and creating your insurance policy that you can use it. Be your own banker. I don't know. There's so many different terms for that, but I'm thinking that's where Mr. Sanford is going with that one. Yeah, yeah that's also another great tool that not everyone knows about and uses. So that's a cool one. I, and to be honest with you, Lane, I haven't yet, but I'm playing with that idea now. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Your net worth is more than half a million, million dollars. No-brainer. Yeah. Thank but, you, uh, Mr. Sanford, for that input. But yeah, to end things off, if people want to get into a group with more credit investors, they can check out my family office on a mastermind. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. And I'm my book is coming out. I was going to say, is that a new book? That's I like the cover. The cover is very attractive. I didn't tell you about this, but it's right here. I've been reading it and recording it. I just sit here and I read it, just like I'm reading you guys a bedtime story, and then I've been recording it for my audiobook. So oh. at this rate, I will finish it by Christmas time, but it's coming out. But here it is. And I wanted to do the audiobook too at the same time because, you know, who reads books these days? So the release is going to be for Christmas then, around Christmas? I don't know. We'll see. I have to, like, finish reading it and then I'm recording it too at the same time. That's cool. So we're I'm trying we're... to, like, interject stories here. Oh. Wait, so beside, so in your audiobook, you, besides reading directly, you, you add in commentary too? Yeah, I think I got the idea oh. from who was David Goggins. Have you read that book? But his audiobook has a lot of interjected stories and to add a lot of things in there, which I thought was a cool idea. Oh, please uh, let us know how to get a copy when it does come out. I will. Get on my email list, get on Dean's email. And then if you guys don't have any more questions, we'll wrap it up for this evening. And find us at rialo.com. Not that we will cue the outro. A free real estate investing group check out reialoha.com. We're just two local guys with so much to say. So listen to the real estate brothers today.
Hey, just some legal stuff here. Although these two brothers are pretty knowledgeable and have over 2,100 rental units and own over $160 million worth of real estate, the preceding are only ideas and not to be taken as legal, tax, or financial advice, okay? You should always seek the professional advice of other professionals on your team and think for yourself and do your own due diligence, okay? Aloha.